0: Unfortunately, I don't think our our FDA is prepared for this, and even with the Food Safety Modernization Act, it's it's great to say, hey, uh, countries have to produce food under this equivalent practices, but uh, who's going to be there to make sure they're doing that? Uh, The oversight, our FDA can't afford to do that.
1: This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambroji. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on The Legal Talk Network.
2: Hello and welcome to the Lawyer to Lawyer on The Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a gorgeous Southern California. My co-host Bob Ambroji is off this week. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued. We'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, which is a web-based practice management program for lawyers, at goclio.com and PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial, you can go to pclaw.com slash radio. Well, today's show, some of the statistics we're going to be talking about are startling. According to the Centers for Disease Control, 48 million Americans are the victim of foodborne illnesses every year in the United States. And out of those millions, 128,000 are sick enough to be hospitalized. And listen to this 3,000 people die every year from eating food, from foodborne illnesses. Well, some of the latest warnings and findings include salmonella in sushi, listeria in alfalfa sprouts pink slime and ground meat, and even meat glue that's used to glue pieces of meat together to give the appearance of one solid piece of meat. All of this has left many Americans wondering, just what are we really eating? How safe is our food supply? And are the regulations strict enough? Well, today we're going to be focusing on food safety and lawyer-to-lawyer, so let's get our discussion started with our experts. First up is Dr. Michael Doyle from the University of Georgia College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences. Dr. Doyle is the university's director of the Center for Food Safety. His research centers around food microbiology and focuses on bacterial foodborne pathogens. Welcome to to Lawyer-to-Lawyer, Michael.
0: It's a pleasure to be with you.
2: And our next guest is an accomplished attorney and national expert in food safety. William Marler is the managing partner of Marler Clark, the food safety law firm. Bill has represented thousands of individuals in claims against food companies whose contaminated products have caused life-altering injuries and, in some cases, even death. And he's the publisher of Food Safety News. Welcome, Bill. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Well, Bill, as I introduced this subject today. We talked about some of, or introduced some of the recent warnings. Can you give us on some of the dangerous and recent warnings and recalls we've been hearing about?
3: Well, I mean, I think you're right to note that there's, uh, um, you know, salmonella in sushi. There's been an outbreak of uh, E. coli uh, in South Carolina, an outbreak of salmonella linked to a uh, uh, bean product in North Carolina um I think you know for me, it seems like a nearly daily occurrence. We either have a you know outbreak with you know injured people um, or uh, a recall of some product um, Listeria in lettuce is and bagged lettuce um, has done a nationwide and actually international recall from lettuce grown in California, so it's a pretty much a daily occurrence, if not weekly.
2: And Doctor Doyle, we're we're talking about uh, *Listeria*, *E. coli*, *Salmonella*. How dangerous and potentially deadly? How how do these things get into our food?
0: Well, there's a variety of ways. Uh, one of the most common ways is through the fecal matter from from animals. Uh, animals like cattle and chickens and wild birds, and they, they frequently carry the *Salmonella*, something called *Campylobacter*. Listeria, and, and ruminants in particular like cattle uh carry e coli the e coli 0157 that that causes the very severe illnesses especially in kids so somehow the the manure uh from these animals uh get onto the food, whether it be you know the animals themselves being processed uh the meat becomes contaminated the milk the raw milk becomes contaminated the uh the 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 manure is used to fertilize ground which then can contaminate uh the, the vegetables and the and the and the produce that grows
2: on it. What well, what kind of foods are the most susceptible to pathogens?
0: Well, uh the ones that I would consider to be uh the greatest risks are uh sprouts, raw raw sprouts because uh the seeds uh from which the sprouts are grown can be contaminated with salmonella and E. coli and we've had many outbreaks associated with both these organisms and alfalfa sprouts and, and a variety of sprouts. And, and the problem we have is these, these, uh, these seeds are put into water and they're held at a temperature that the bacteria can grow and there's nothing to prevent the bacteria from growing so they can grow to very high populations. And, and there's no treatment, we eat them raw. So there's no heat treatment to kill them.
2: And, and, um, and Bill, Bill, should we be taking some of these foods off the list of foods we eat?
3: Well, I have, <laughs> you know. And uh, Michael's right. I mean, there there are. I think there are certain foods that are just you know inherently more risky than others. Um, you know, sprouts is certainly the thing that you know I counsel you know everybody who listens just simply not to eat. Um, you know, one of the largest and uh, deadliest. Uh, out, foodborne illness outbreaks occurred just about a year ago in Germany where, um, you know, almost 5,000 people got sick, 50 people died, and 900 plus people developed acute kidney failure, and it was linked to sprouts, uh, uh, sprouted at a, a small, uh, facility in Germany. Um, there, you know, there are other problematic products, uh, in my view, like raw milk, which is sort of having a, a, an odd resurgence here in the last several years and we're seeing, you know, uh, you know, literally, you know, an outbreak once a week uh linked to raw milk. Presently there are four children on life support uh in a Portland area hospital linked to consuming raw milk and they were hit by E. coli 015787. One of the uh things that I used to say was a risky product was uh ground beef or hamburger. But, uh, you know, a lot to do with the research that, uh, you know, Dr. Doyle has done. Um, you know, the meat industry has done a really remarkable job over the last decade, uh, you know, making hamburger, you know, safer. Um, uh, not completely safe, but certainly safer. And, you know, I would take it off one of those higher risk products, um, that I probably had on, you know, a decade ago.
2: Well, Mike, do you think the inspectors are out there doing their jobs, or how does this stuff slip by?
3: Well,
0: the inspectors can't with their with their eyes see these harmful bacteria, so it's not possible for them to 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 inspect the the bacteria away. Um, and it's only meat, poultry, and, and processed eggs that that have uh, uh, USDA full time inspection. Uh, the FDA regulated products uh, they don't have that type of inspection.
2: What are, what are FDA regulated products?
0: Everything but uh, meat, poultry, and processed eggs. So all the other foods out there, seafood and and processed foods.
2: So none of those no. are being inspected.
0: Well, they they are inspected, but they're not inspected daily or while the while the meat is being processed. Uh, they're inspected uh, maybe every three to five years or ten years, depending on what type of processing plant it is.
3: You know a good example of that is the uh listeria outbreak uh that occurred in cantaloupe grown in Colorado um in uh, October September September October of last year that sickened 146 uh killed uh 36 people uh it's the you know the biggest death toll in a foodborne illness uh outbreak in nearly a hundred years uh that plant had never been inspected by anybody local state or federal agency ever and you know that's part of the problem is is that you know we have you know FDA has responsibility for about 80% of the food supply both interior in the United States and also for imports yet you know they have a really 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 small budget when it comes to you know uh, inspections and it's uh, you know, it's becoming much more of a problem. And in the imports, in the import side,
0: uh, usually about 1% to 2% of the food coming in is actually inspected and, and about half percent or less is actually tested. So uh, the FDA just doesn't have the, the resources that the USDA does to do the inspections that might be needed.
2: Well, we do have the Food Safety and Modernization Act, uh, last year in 2011. Bill, is that working? Is it a success? Is it failing? What's the deal with it?
3: Well, um, you know, uh, that was a bill that has been, was perking in the Senate and the House, uh, you know, really since, you know, the 1990s and, you know, started to move in 2006, was passed by the House in 2009, and finally by the Senate. 2010 and then signed by the president. The problem, frankly, with it, and it, and it was a pretty comprehensive overhaul of uh, FDA rules and regulations, uh, and certainly laid out an incredible roadmap that I think in the long run uh, will have benefits. The, the problem is is that there was no funding mechanism attached to it at all. And... Um, you know, therein lies the problem. You're asking, you know, the FDA to do more, but not giving them the resources to do it. And in fact, uh, there are some parts of the, the the new Food Safety Modernization Act that are mandatory, specifically with respect to putting more resources into imports. Uh, those are mandatory, and the FDA's got to move things in that direction, which means they're going to move things away from, you know, U.S. production, which frankly, still makes up the bulk of our out- outbreaks and the bulk of our food production.
2: Well, given that you know, most of us are, are on the practical side of this, where we're, you know, we eat the food and we sometimes get sick, we sometimes don't, how is it that you can tell that you're sick from food? Mike, do you have any kind of classic symptoms that people develop, and how do you tell it's part of a food outbreak?
0: Well, the symptoms can vary depending on what the bacterium or, or uh, toxin is that causes the problem. Uh, uh, with with salmonella, for example, it's typically uh, diarrhea, sometimes vomiting, and a fever. Uh, with norovirus, it's, it's uh, more common vomiting and sometimes diarrhea. Uh, with the E. coli, uh, it, it, it can be a very bloody diarrhea that progresses to kidney failure. And, and how do you know it's a foodborne outbreak? Well, the best thing is to, d- to report it to the local health department. And if there's enough people that come forward, they they can d- identify an outbreak. And also, what's being done is that the uh, the bacteria being isolated from these patients are are being, you might say, molecularly fingerprinted. And that information is then sent to the Centers for Disease Control, where, where they monitor all these fingerprints coming in, and if they see uh, uh, several coming in in a a short period of time that match, uh, then they'll uh, look into this as a potential outbreak and and do a case control study, and, and if it's an outbreak, they can identify the type of food that's involved.
2: Bill, how does the liability scheme behind this work? You know, Sometimes you get sick that day, sometimes a couple of days later. It's difficult to tie into a particular place where you ate. You may have eaten a couple of meals since then. How does, how does the whole scheme of liability work for these types of outbreaks?
3: Mike, in a sense, set the table for, you know, how it's done. But, uh, it, you know, basically is, it's all about causation. Um, if you're able to prove causation, uh, then liability is presumed. Um, you know, if a product has a pathogen in it that can sicken or kill you, um the product is presumed to be defective and therefore strict liability applies. The real issue in and in all of the cases I deal with the 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 bulk of the work has to do with being able to prove the, what product made you sick? And, you know, using the cantaloupe outbreak as an, as an example, uh, it's always a little easier to figure out an outbreak, uh, if you have lots of people from many different states, uh, all eating the same thing within the same time frame. And as Mike said, the being able to either isolate from the person's stool or in the instance of listeria from their spinal fluid or blood, uh, the bacteria, which they, they take the DNA out of and they can turn it into a, a thing that looks just like the barcode on the back of the cereal box. And they can compare those to all the people. And the 146 people in the Listeria outbreak, in a sense, all of them had the similar, you know, barcode. Uh, and so causation became pretty easy. It's really difficult, you know, if frankly not impossible to isolate an individual case. If someone has E. coli 0157, the incubation period is, you know, three to five days. For listeria, the incubation period can be three to 70 days. And if it's an isolated case, one case, you know, if I asked you, what did you eat 70 days ago, you're going to look at me kind of oddly. And that becomes part of the problem, uh, which to my way of thinking, litigation, food, you know, lawsuits are one method of trying to make people accountable. But for the vast majority of people who get sick or die from foodborne illness, um, they never can figure out what the cause is. Um, and so that's why, you know, a regulatory scheme is so important to, uh in funding things, is so important to prevent the outbreaks and prevent the illnesses to begin with.
2: What type of penalties get put into place for uh, these statutory violations? Are they enough?
3: <laughs> well, you know, in my view, uh, no. Um, you know, there there have been, in 20 years of doing this, and, you know, Mike, I think you could jump in, too. I can't, you know, there, there are a handful, a handful uh, of uh, criminal violations, even misdemeanor violations that have been prosecuted, um, you know, even in some of the more egregious uh, foodborne illness outbreaks, uh, where there've been, you know, numerous people sick and die. Um, there was a uh, an outbreak you might remember from 2009, the Peanut Corporation of America outbreak. Uh, nine people died, over 700 people sickened uh and you know the evidence showed that uh management uh had a fairly strong if not an absolute idea that they were shipping salmonella tainted peanut butter uh out to the country um, and 4000 different types of products got recalled the estimated loss was a billion dollars uh and yet you know no criminal charges have been filed to date
2: Mike what um what about pink slime, white slime, advanced meat recovery, uh, meat glue? What what are, what are all these things, and are they dangerous?
0: Well, what you refer to as pink slime and meat glue, those, those are really not food safety issues. In fact, uh, this uh, pink slime, which is, uh, is basically uh, ground beef that's—or— that, that, or, the meat trimmings that's still left on the bone that are that are removed, that they go through a process in which uh, ammonia is added, and this helps kill the harmful bacteria, like E. coli, to, to make it safer. So it's not a really a food safety issue. I think it's more of an issue where consumers are saying, hey, what is the industry putting in my food? I don't know that I want to have ammonia in my food. And with meat glue, well, basically what that is is a company maybe taking the trimmings off of a prime piece of meat, which is still, you know, a, a very good cut of meat, but they're putting it, putting these these trimmings back together with something t- called transglutamase. It's a an enzyme that's found in blood that it's it, it like clots blood, I guess you'd say, and so it kind of glues the meat back together, and it looks like a prime piece of meat. And, and it, 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 consumers look at that and say, well, that's kind of deceptive. You know, if I'm paying for a prime piece of meat, this is, uh, this is meat that's been trimmed away from a prime piece of meat and put back together. So that's not a food safety issue either. These are, these are more uh, issues with uh, consumer perception as to whether this is, uh, uh, these are acceptable
3: practices.
2: But they're not necessarily dangerous.
3: They're not going to make you sick. And, you know, Mike and I, you know, frankly, I agree with that. I think, I think the only, uh, concern that I have, uh, you know, for the, the, the lean beef or the pink slime is, is that it was marketed a bit that it, you know, uh, would, uh, you know, kill E. coli and therefore the meat would be safer. I think the jury's out on that. Um, but I don't think it in and of itself is harmful the meat glue i agree with mike uh, the only concern i have there is is that when you take pieces of meat uh, and you glue them together you take the exterior of the meat and then you make it the interior of the meat and and really that meat, that's where the risk is that uh, bacteria is on the exterior of the meat and people just need to know that they need if they do that it's basically you're turning a steak into something that's more like a hamburger and you've got to cook that product uh, to 160 degrees internal temperature.
2: Well, the Food and Drug Administration has declared meat glue as "quote generally recognized as safe." Mike, that's not hardly a glowing recommendation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, what they mean by that is it's not going to make you sick. It's it's uh, the, the transglutamate, the enzyme that's used, is, is is something that's naturally occurring in blood, and and you know it's it's something that. Uh, you consume, it's not going to make you sick. It's the bacteria and the toxins that might be associated with the meat that that would make you sick.
2: Right. Well, I'm not sure that that's exactly comforting, but gentlemen, it's time for us to take a short break. We will have much more on the safety of food we eat when when Lawyer to Lawyer returns on the Legal Talk Network.
4: Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud and is it a difficult process?
2: No, I with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days, to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, pr- a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in less than in the cloud in less than five minutes, and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days.
4: We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you, and if you'd like to get more information on Cleo, feel free to visit www.goCleo.com. That's g-o-c-l-i-o.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh yeah, I need to do that too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's
1: perfect. The office can wait. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com.
2: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Our guests today are Dr. Michael Doyle and attorney Bill Marler. Let's get back to our discussion on the safety of food in America Bill, are you, do you have any proposals that you'd submit to Congress to change if you had the opportunity to do so?
3: Um I think the the main thing that I would do uh is two things. One is I would fully fund uh the FDA's, you know, mandate under the new Food Safety Modernization Act. Um, I think that uh we've got to have more resources there uh that really in the long run, um the the cost to implement is about a, a billion five over five years, um, and when you consider that foodborne illnesses, um, you know, estimates are between uh, seventy-five and a hundred billion dollars are lost due to lost productivity, medical expenses, and that doesn't even include recall costs and lost business. So it's one of those sort of things where, you know, frankly, I think you know you're you're spending good money uh And preventing a lot of problems uh the the only other uh sort of major issue that I really think um that uh government needs to take a hard look at is uh the use of uh third party auditors um you know I have had a lot of experience in litigation where uh an auditor hired by a company to come in and gives them a ninety five or a superior rating uh and you know, within days or weeks, you know, the manufacturing facility uh, is the cause of an outbreak. So I think we need to tighten up some of the certification uh, rules for auditors. Uh, So those two things I think would go a long way uh, uh, to, you know, making sure our food supply is safer.
2: Mike, any recommendations from you?
0: Well, my biggest concern is uh, the foods that are coming into this country. Uh, it's growing at a dramatic rate, and right now it appears to be at least 20% of the food we consume in the U.S. is from other countries, and many of these countries don't use the same level of sanitary practices that we use here in the U.S. to produce foods. Not to say we're perfect, but but, um, if you see how manure is just thrown into ponds, for example, to grow shrimp, and, and, and the list goes on and on in terms of, in sanitary practices used in many other countries for for food production uh... we're gonna we're gonna see i think a whole lot more issues uh... growing issues uh... with with this and uh unfortunately, I don't think our, our FDA is prepared for this. And even with the Food Safety Modernization Act, it's, it's great to say, hey, uh, countries have to produce food under this equivalent practices. But uh, who's going to be there to make sure they're doing that? Uh, the oversights, we, we, you know, our FDA can't afford to do that. So it's going to be a big challenge for us.
2: Well, Mike, what recommendations would you make to just the everyday person you get food in the house from the grocery store you maybe bring it in from your backyard or maybe you get it from a neighbor what do you do to make sure that your food is safe before you serve it to your family
0: well the food that's probably the riskiest uh... you know we talked about sprouts i consider that the highest risk but foods of animal origin bill touched on this with ground beef it in raw milk it it's not just those but foods of animal origin in general that are not processed or cooked can carry harmful microbes we're talking about beef and lamb and eggs and so on and it 's important to to make sure that those are properly refrigerated uh, that they don 't cross contaminate the juices from the meats, for example don 't get onto other foods and and that you properly cook these foods you, you, uh, in general, one hundred and sixty degrees should kill Salmonella and and any any e. coli um, but but it's good food handling practices that will help uh, mitigate these types of problems.
2: And Bill, what about uh, being prophylactic about what you eat? I mean, do, do we really need to get to the point where we start keeping food diaries?
3: <laughs> well, I don't think about that unless I don't think that's you know going to be something that we got to get to. I, I mean, there are frankly just risky or foods. I don't disagree with Mike's. Analysis on how you you need to handle and 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 that goes not just for consumers in their homes but um you know people who work in uh, restaurants and people who work in manufacturing facilities really have to develop you know a food safety culture that food safety is a really important part of you know what they do from you know in a sense from farm to fork um you know, there are products that, you know, for me are just off, you know, the Marlar family, you know, menu. And that's, you know, sprouts, raw milk, uh, undercooked meat of any kind, whether it's, you know, fish, poultry, or beef. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm probably just too close to the, uh, cantaloupe issue to, but, uh, you know, cantaloupe is now scaring me a bit too. So, I mean, there's just some things that I think, you know, people frankly should avoid. One thing that's, I think, really important, um, is, is that for the vast majority of people, uh, who are, you know, healthy and, you know, ages 10 to 50, there's, your foodborne illness is a less of a risk. It doesn't mean it's zero. The people who are most vulnerable are the very young. The elderly and people who have any sort of immune compromised situation of like cancer, uh, or they're on some kind of therapy that, uh, medical therapy that, uh, you know, reduces their immune system. Those are the people who are a, a big risk and it's a big number in our population. I think it's probably, you know, 30 to 40 percent of the population falls in that category. So it's a, it's a big deal. And so people, I think, especially that group, Needs to pay a lot of attention, or the you know family members of that group need to pay a lot of attention to the foods they eat.
2: Is there a safe food, Mike? Is there oh, sure. a group of foods that we could kind of say, yeah, you can eat these and not worry about it? Does it, does it well, matter whether it's processed or whether it's not processed?
0: Well, in general, if a, if a food has been cooked, um, fully cooked, uh, that and it's ready to eat, that typically is safe. And so I wouldn't, you know, go to the store, you can buy processed cheese, for example. You can buy beans in, the, in a can and things like that. I, I'd feel very comfortable with that type of product.
2: What about the, uh, the doses of antibiotics in farm animals? Is that considered to be a food safety issue, or is that just something that we all have to be concerned about because we're becoming more immune to antibiotics?
0: Well, the, the antibiotics uh, typically are not a problem in the food itself. The the biggest concern in in public health is that the bacteria, like the harmful bacteria, the salamonella might be in the meat, uh, they become antibiotic resistant from exposure to these antibiotics, and then if we become ill with these bacteria, uh, we may not be able to be treated. The antibiotics that would be important to to kill uh, the infection wouldn't work. So that's the biggest fear. Yeah, period, occasionally, you might uh, uh, hear of a situation where there was uh, an antibiotic residue detected in meat or milk, but that's not very frequent in this country.
2: And what about traveling? For those, uh, one one last question: Do, any precautions we should be taking while we're traveling into foreign countries?
0: Well, what 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 uh, I would recommend, and I've been pretty successful because I don't think I've ever gotten ill on a foreign trip. But don't drink the water. Uh, drink uh, drink purified water or uh, coffee or, or or soda pop. But water is is typically a, a, an issue. Um, and, and raw raw f- uh, fruits and vegetables. Stay away from those as well because uh, they they can frequently be contaminated with harmful microbes. Eat cooked food. If it's uh, some, something you can peel, like a banana, uh, that's that's usually safe. Uh, be sure to wash your hands uh, in between, though.
2: All right. Well, gentlemen, we're just about at the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up with your final thoughts and your contact information. So, Bill, I'll throw it over to you first.
3: Um, I guess my final Uh, thoughts are right. I really want to thank you for having uh, us on, especially uh, Mike. Uh, He's, uh, you know, been around the block uh, on food safety for a long time, and it was great that you had him on. I think he gives a great perspective. Um, You final thoughts, frankly, I think, you know, we just, you know, we as citizens, you know, really need to, you know, pay attention and urge our, you know, uh, representatives, Congress members and senators you know, to really get serious about uh, funding and therefore, you know, frankly, us paying for through our tax dollars, you know, really fully funding, you know, the FDA's mandate because in the long run, it's good money to spend, you know, to protect the food supply, to protect business, uh, and, you know, to not have these horrible outbreaks that we see happen. So, um, you know, I, I think that's probably my, you know, final thought for the day.
2: Great. Well gentlemen, uh, and Bill, your contact information?
3: Sure. It's uh Bill Marlar. I'm in Seattle, Washington at uh, Marler Marlar Clark, the food safety law firm.
2: Great. And I don't know, uh Mike, that we got contact information from you.
3: Yeah,
0: it it's uh I'm at uh the University of Georgia Center for Food Safety and uh, uh website address uh is uh Mdoyle at UGA edu.
2: Great. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for participating in the program today. It seems that, um, well, I think generally our food supply seems to be safe. Uh, there are some areas of concerns and some things to watch out for and, you know, precautions to take for yourself. It's just smart food handling and food safety and, as as we've mentioned, avoiding cross-contamination and making sure that you remember what you eat in case you do get sick. So it's uh, something to think about. Anyway, gentlemen, thank you very much. We want to remind our listeners that they can now get uh CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to select Legal Talk Network podcasts and go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all Legal Talk Network shows on iTunes. We have an Android app now where you can access all Legal Talk Network shows on your phone. We hope to have an iPhone app shortly. So check it out. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll be back again next week with another great legal topic. So when you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. We'll see you then.
1: The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss.